We're going to talk about what's love got to do with it. What has love? Soppy thing, isn't it? So last century. Uh, we're talking about love in the sense of loving nature and whether we've lost touch with nature by putting tarmac all over it. To declare an interest, I've just written a book, published a book last week called In Love with Betty the Crow to represent, that's the first 40 years of the science show. And I say I'm in love with Betty the Crow because I'm so overwhelmed by the brilliance of nature as represented by this amazing bird who turned out to be an insightful engineer doing things that no animal is supposed to be able to do, not even chimps, as Jane Goodall discovered in the jungle. So what's love got to do with it? You may remember E.O. Wilson's book, Biophilia, suggesting there's something in our bones that makes us react positively to what's around us. That is nature, to make us want to belong to the land. So here we have a number of amazing people. Uh, I'm not quite sure the guy in the red at the end is a charming person from Canada whom you've met already. And next to me is Indira Naidu, who uh, is a dear friend and colleague. And uh, to give a tiny bit of background, best-selling food sustainability author, journalist, broadcaster, environmental advocate, hosted and reported for some of the country's most distinguished news and current affairs programs, in 2009 was selected from 2,000 applicants to be trained by former US President Al Gore as a climate change presenter. She's been the media manager for consumer advocacy group Choice and was a Geneva-based sustainability consultant for the UN International Trade Center. But I remember her most recently for having written a book about her balcony and how she grew food on it. And guess who launched it in Sydney? Uh, our current prime minister. There you are. A young, enthusiastic prime minister. <laughs> Next to her, Amelia Telford. A Bundjalung woman, national director of the Seed Indigenous Youth Climate Network with the Australian Youth Climate Coalition. Her role supports young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to have a voice on climate change and environmental justice. In 2015, she was awarded the Bob Brown Foundation Young Environmentalist of the Year and the Australian Geographic Society's Young Conservationist of the Year to add to her 2014 <laughs> National NIDOC Youth of the Year Award. Thank you. What a panel. Indra, to start with you, what does love mean to you in this context? I, I think um, my work has, has led me very much to believe that it is all about love. You really can't get people to care about the environment unless they love it. And it is quite a difficult proposition for people like most of us in Australia who live in cities. We're quite disconnected from nature. We're disconnected from our food, which is most people's connection to nature. And so for my journey, um, which has been a slightly unusual one, I guess, coming from broadcasting and journalism to now very much a passionate advocate for um, addressing climate change and the environment, really has come from a, pl a place of love. So even after all my work in environmentalism, it was very much an intellectual idea still for me. And it wasn't until I went back uh, to my apartment in Potts Point in inner Sydney 
and I was standing on my balcony and looking out on all the bare concrete and tarmac around Potts Point, which is the point of greatest um, population density in Australia. 12,000 people per square kilometre live in my suburb. And I realised I was actually at the heart of a problem and I was at the heart of the disconnection. I was at a farmer's market that week and a farmer gave me the most amazing tasting cherry tomato robin to try and it was the sweetest most delicious tomato I'd ever had and when I went back and said to him where did this come from who grew it he said I grew it myself it's an heirloom variety it doesn't store or transport well so um, you have to eat it after it's been picked and I said but why can't I buy it anywhere else and he said because it is rare and it doesn't store so most producers don't want to grow it and I said, well, how can I get more of them? And he said, well, buy some of my tomatoes, save some of the seeds, plant it in a pot, and you can have these tomatoes whenever you want. Now, for me, never being a gardener, never growing anything, and only having a balcony, I said, but how can I be a producer of food where I live? And he said, just plant the seed and see where it takes you. Well, that was about nine years ago, and that tomato seed that I planted, I'm still reaping tomatoes from that seed nine years later. And not only did I only grow tomatoes, I grew uh, 43 different herbs and vegetables on that small balcony. And in one year, I grew 70 kilos of produce. Now, I know, pretty amazing. Now, and what it, yeah. <laughs> And I think what it proved to me, first of all, is all these messages that we're fed, that we're too busy to grow food, we're too busy to cook our own food. And because of that disconnection, that's part of the reason so many of those environmental problems we're experiencing are happening. The pressures, the agricultural systems, the commercial ways that we do agriculture in the world are causing so many of these problems. When you grow some of your own food, you appreciate nature in a way that I just never had before. It took me three months to grow one eggplant. Now, when I walk past an eggplant now, I think about the, the effort that went into the production of that eggplant, the person who grew it, the soil, the water, the sunlight. It has become so much more precious to me because I allowed myself to move into that being a producer mindset and so now I don't waste any of my food the way I used to every bit of that eggplant I appreciate I treasure I value so my whole way of looking at our environment our food system and its impact has been affected by growing some of my own food so my work now is very much about encouraging people even if you only have a sunny windowsill you can still grow some herbs and when you live in an apartment you know um, the way we bring food into our cities is so damaging with our carbon emissions, the cost of storage and refrigeration. If we can grow some more of our own food in the city, not only will we bridge this gap and understand and love nature, but we'll also start reducing the impact that our food systems have on the way our way of life. And the thing that no one told me or I wasn't expecting, I mean, gardeners uh, tell me now, um, the joy that comes from growing your own food. For those of you who have a garden and grow some of your own food, I can't tell you how addicted I've become, how nutty I've become about it. Everywhere I go, I want to plant gardens. I want to grow vegetables. Um, I spend time now with lots of disadvantaged communities around Australia, around the world. My book that I wrote based on growing my own food called The Edible Balcony, 
became surprisingly a bestseller. I mean, I, I was more shocked than anyone else. I really didn't think there were other people who wanted to grow food on a balcony. Uh, and that has allowed me to travel widely. So I spend a lot of time in the States, Europe, Asia, working with other communities who want to do the similar thing. Grow food that's cheap, uh, well, affordable, um, that's healthy, that's much higher in nutrients because it's grown close to where people live. And it can, it's connecting these communities with the, um, the food system, with nature and with each other. It's a very powerful way to start that love that we need to have to really take the next step to protect our, our world and our planet. Quick couple of questions. First of all, was it difficult? Did you go through all sorts of agony finding out how to do it well? Well, th this is the other thing, Robin. I mean, I really believe that it was difficult because people kept saying, you know, um, that's why we have specialists, that's why we have farmers, that's why we have growers. It's a difficult thing to do. But when I did all my reading, I saw that just 100 years ago, every one of us grew our own food and cooked our own food. So it couldn't have been that difficult if everyone was doing it. And what I try to do is just say, I'm going to start small with some herbs, a few vegetables and a few pots, and see what would happen. And I only put aside 10 minutes a day. It wasn't as if I was slaving out there every day. And I have to admit, I was pretty shocked how well everything grew. Um, everything was successful, particularly tomatoes and basil. I've got lots of north-facing light. Um, I started to reconnect with nature on all different levels. You know, I r didn't realise before I grew zucchini that I would require pollinators. I mean, this is how disconnected I was. I'm allergic to bees and I thought it was a good thing I'd never seen bees on my balcony. Now I had to plant things to attract bees to give me zucchinis. And because I was so obsessed with getting these perfect zucchinis and how I was going to prepare them, I forgot my fear of bees. I planted borage flowers because bees love them. They're really sweet and beautiful nectar. Within the first few weeks of my borage flowering, I had beautiful pollinated um, the zucchinis growing all over my balcony. And bees suddenly, rather than something to fear, I realise how important they are in our food system. And I've become a great advocate for bees, protecting them from so many diseases that uh, most of you would know that they're suffering from at the moment. And now um, you've got your own honey. Yes, and I'm now helping a homeless crisis centre in Potts Point called the Wayside Chapel. Some of you may have heard about its work. Yeah, it's a beautiful organisation. It's been there 50 years and um, we've now um, put a vegetable garden on the rooftop of the Wayside Chapel, 200 square metres. We grow 80 different varieties. It's all run by our homeless visitors and these are often people suffering from mental health issues and, and lots of other terrible um, life situations. But we've managed to become so productive that we're supplying the cafe in our building with fresh produce. We've got a teaching kitchen attached to the garden and just recently... Recently, we've put in beehives and Kylie Kwong, the very famous chef, has moved her new restaurant across the road and she's asked us to supply her restaurant with honey from our beehives and she now uses that honey in her pork buns, which are absolutely delicious. If you get a chance to go to Billy Kwong, I really recommend you try them. And the money that she pays us for the honey, we then feed back into our program and that helps support um, a beautiful green space, horticultural therapy for our homeless um, visitors and, of course, wonderful bee habitat as well. So small gardens can be extremely powerful in urban environments and um, I really want everyone to reimagine those concrete, those tarmac spaces, the terraces, the rooftops as places that can actually grow food, support our environment, absorb stormwater, be much more useful to the environment than what we're currently using it for. Of course.
The man who launched the book, Malcolm Turnbull, did point out that in Potts Point, people grow other things, usually on their balcony. But what made you choose him to launch it? Well, it was um, fortuitous in a way because Malcolm was going through a difficult period. He'd just lost the Liberal leadership and he was in that whether I should stay in politics or not. And despite, obviously, very frustrating for us as, as voters, we know he does have genuine commitments to the environment. Uh, we're not quite seeing that yet in policy, but hopefully that happens soon. Um, so I knew that he had a deep commitment, and he is my local member for Potts Point. So it seemed to make sense that he would be uh, the person. And also, as it turns out, he's a huge supporter of the Wayside Chapel. And in fact, he and his wife Lucy uh, donated $500,000 to the rebuilding of the Wayside and saving that amazing organisation. So um, I think uh, deep down there inside Malcolm, <laughs> there, there is a genuine commitment to many of these ideas, but um, obviously I'd love to see them reflected in policy. Amelia, what's that got to do with it for you? Love has everything to do with it. Um, I would like to acknowledge um, that we are on Ghana country and um, acknowledge Aboriginal people from this area and surrounding areas and um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the audience. I know that there's a few of you out there. <laughs> I've already spotted some of you. Um, but, yeah, I think, you know, it's really important that we do, in all of these conversations that we're having about our land and sustainability and our future, that we acknowledge the Indigenous people here in Australia and around the world who've been living on this planet sustainably for tens of thousands of years. And if we... <laughs> Yeah, you know, if, if our people can do it, not only do we know that we can do it again, but we also know that it's, it's our Indigenous people that we need to be supporting to be leading this, this movement and to be put in positions where, you know, we are the ones that make decisions about what goes on in our country, um, which is ultimately about the work that I do. And I've been really fortunate to grow up in a family. I don't even want to look at mum and dad over there because they're going to make me cry. Um, but I've grown up in a family... Damn it. <laughs> no, I've, I've really, truly grown up in a family where I've been all my life um, supported to love, um, you know, my family and love one another. And I think ultimately that's what we need to be looking at in this crisis because it's not just um, a battle for how we love the land, it's a battle for how we love each other and we know that ultimately those two things are interconnected. Um, LAUGHTER But when we look at the global response to climate change and environmental issues and, and the way that we do respect and, or treat <laughs> the lack of respect that we have for our land, um, it highlights the inequalities in this world and the injustices. And it shows that, you know, a lot of the time we talk about this as a future issue or only a future issue, and that fails to recognise the people um, all across the world um, indigenous people, low socioeconomic communities, people of colour, um, all of the people who, you know, too often are at the bottom of our food chain, really, um, uh, that we have been facing the causes of this crisis and the impacts of it for far too long. And right now we're living in a time in the world w where every single decision that we make um, is impacting, you know, our, our people today um, and generations into the future. And so, you know, when you talk about love, it's about the way that we love each other, but also um, the way that we value people. And we need to be valuing people equally um, and supporting each other to be, um, you know, to have a, um, 
an equal playing field. I, the one word that um, stood out to me when David was talking earlier, was everyone here for David's earlier speech? Great. Um, one word that stood out to me when he was talking about the CEO of um, an oil company um, who's working the tar sands in Canada, and the word that stood out was um, fairness, or um, that you know David's um, approach to the CEO and the meeting was unfair for him. And I thought that you know we live in a country that supposedly values fairness, and yet we're not very good at you know actually. Um, uh, seeing the practical sides of that and what that means and acknowledging that, you know, people are being treated very unfairly in this country. There's a lot of places, including here in, in South Australia, where, where the people who ultimately have the rights over this land aren't the ones who get to make decisions about it. And so that's not very fair to me. And I think all of you probably agree that we need to get our acts together. Um, and I have some points, but I'm rambling a bit. <laughs> well, may I ask you... How do you learn to love the city now, personally? It's hard. Um, I So, uh, in my work with the Seed Indigenous Youth Climate Network, I'm based down in Melbourne. Um, I moved there straight from home, um, which is back up on Bunchland Country in northern New South Wales. And the whole reason why I do this work is, um, you know, for my family and for the place that I come from. And it's very hard to be away from that place um, and, and people. It's hard to be in the city and constantly be running and be very busy and I have to specifically make time to go out and, you know, to, and, and to go out um, on country. But even, even saying that is kind of weird in itself because we're always on country. And I think like Indira, you know, in her work is trying to make our cities and, and urban areas um, more connected to our land and to the place that we're always walking on. Um, and But it's hard. Like, I <laughs> my housemates can um, vouch for me in saying this. I'm not very good at looking after my own um, vegetable garden because, you know, I have to encourage them to be watering it when I'm out and about. And, and it's really hard, but I know that, you know, People do need to make time for this. It's a really serious issue. And um, I've recently got to meet Crystal Lehman, who's from the Beaver Lake Cree Nation in Canada, from um, whose country is impacted by the tar sands. And she got asked a question about um, whether this is just a fight of Indigenous people or whether it's everyone's fight. And her answer was similar to what David was talking about. It was that if you breathe air and you drink water, then it is your fight. Thank you. David, when I last saw you in Canada, you had just come back from the Pale Blue Dot Tour, which was a wonderful idea of trying to go around the main cities and provinces of Canada and asking them to commit as a district, as a place, to a whole new set, a constitution that recognised nature and our love for it. How did you get on? So, uh, we're trying to shift the discussion to a, a, a different... Uh, a different perspective. And so the blue dot refers to the famous essay by Carl Sagan, the astronomer, when Voyager 1, the satellite, was just at the edge of the solar system, one billion kilometers away from Earth. And Carl said to NASA, turn the camera around and take a picture of Earth. And it was a very iconic picture, a big picture now, with black and little spots that are stars and galaxies. But in one-sixth of a pixel, the pixel being the smallest unit, 
one-sixth of a pixel was a pale blue dot, and that was our home. And he wrote this moving essay about that's it, the only home for us that we know in the universe, and in that little pixel you think of all of the people that murdered uh, people and rivers of blood ran so that one tyrant could own a tiny piece of that little blue dot and ended by saying that we should take care, better care of each other and of that little pale blue dot. So we called our tour the Blue Dot Tour and we, we wanted to get in the long run a constitutional amendment and we're inspired by the fact that there are 110 countries in the world Unfortunately, the English-speaking countries like Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the United States, and Britain don't have guarantees of, of, for the environment in their constitution. But 110 countries do. The, one of the more recent ones was France under Jacques Chirac, who was a conservative uh, leader of the country, who consulted widely with French people over a period of a year or a year and a half. Over 90,000 French citizens took part in discussions and in the end Chirac passed uh, some, uh, it's some kind of guarantee for nature in the French constitution. So we chose to do it in Canada in, in a way that's only been tried uh, a few times and only been successful once. And that is to get a grassroots movement to support an amendment, to bring it up till we get seven of the ten provinces with more than half the population of Canada to support the uh, initiative and then that will go to the federal government to pass it as, uh, as an amendment. So most of the time amendments have come in through Parliament itself. We chose to make it a grassroots movement, six-week tour by bus from the East Coast right across Canada and we wanted it to be a big tent. It's not an in, just an environmental issue. We wanted social justice, hunger and poverty. We wanted the arts community all to be involved. So we involved the National Ballet of uh, Canada. We involved one of our great authors, Margaret Atwood, one of our great musicians, Neil Young. And we had musicians all across the country, one of our great uh, uh, painters, Robert Bateman. And we had events in 23 communities. And in every community, we asked the First Nations, the Aboriginal community, if they would get, be involved. Everywhere, First Nations said, you are fighting for what we want. You are fighting for a healthy environment. That's clean air, clean water, clean soil. You're fighting for Mother Earth. So we toured the country to get public interest in the idea to generate grassroots people to get an, um, uh, 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 a regulation for a healthy environment at the municipal level, and then if enough municipalities or cities pass this, we could go to the, the provincial government and say, we want you to pass it at the provincial level, and then we would go to the feds. I thought if six months after we started the tour, if we got one municipality to agree, that would be the start of a massive movement. Three weeks into our tour, we got the first municipality called Richmond in British Columbia. By the sixth uh, week at the end of the tour, we had six communities that had passed it. We now have one out of every three Canadians living in a municipality that has passed the right to a healthy environment. That's 120 communities. It, in it includes our, our biggest cities, 
Toronto, Montreal, uh, Vancouver, Halifax, uh, the North, Yellowknife. We still haven't got the big cities in Alberta, but we're working on it. We have 12,000 volunteers working in communities across the country, and we got our first province, Manitoba, to pass the right to a healthy environment. So we're on the way. It's, it's a massive movement. I've been in Japan and I've been in Australia saying, what the hell, why don't you have one here? And there's been a great deal of interest here, I think, in Australia. Why not? I don't know what your mechanism is to get a, a, a constitutional amendment. But what it does then, it says, as Canadians, you're guaranteed a healthy environment, clean air, clean water, clean soil. Up until we get that, we have always had to prove that a company or a development is harming our health. We have to marshal the evidence that this is damaging our environment. With a constitutional amendment, it's up to any developer or company to prove beyond a doubt they're not in any way harming our healthy environment. That's a huge shift. Let's talk technology. I looked at the front page of the Sydney Morning Herald the other day and it said gridlock, people can't move. Maybe in South Australia it's not quite such a problem yet. <laughs> However, if you use your imagination on, say, two little things we broadcast this year, one in the science show talking about using electric cars which are driverless so they'll come pick you up, take you where you want to go. If that works and people cooperate, you'd have 90% fewer cars in the big city. And you'd have vastly less in the way of imports of fossil fuels. The sums done, as we broadcast a few weeks ago, would be in excess of our earnings and dependence on the coal industry. The savings would exceed even that amount. Another example, which... Um, Catalyst broadcast, my partner Jonica Newby on batteries, talking about a new sort of battery where you've got gel instead of the traditional kind of liquid acid. You can build that, as they already are trying to do, into the fabric of buildings. Lend-lease are already experimenting with such a thing. So the building itself could become a source of energy instead of emitting carbon dioxide. These are possibilities that can happen now and possibly in our cities if we get our act together in the near future. Now, Indra used to work in the ABC, around the corner from the ABC is a building that's all green. And it seems to be working, doesn't it? It's very attractive, it's got green spilling down the front and it can make its own energy and maybe allow to export it. What do you think of it? Yes, Robin, this building um, called Central in Broadway in Sydney is, is extraordinary. Um, it's completely covered in greenery on, on most of its sides. It has an extraordinary solar panel that generates electricity for the building with a tri-generation electricity um, development. And it's been wonderful to actually have a physical example. So many people... Um, but think things can't happen because they haven't seen examples of it. And what's been wonderful to see 
a residential commercial development operating, generating its own electricity, reducing its impact on the environment, has done wonders to show people the ways we can live. Now, unfortunately, Australia, uh, despite all the, the wonderful um, scientific knowledge that's held in this country, uh, isn't really um, showcasing a lot of this technology. I see it a lot in other parts of the world and particularly things like green roof um, farms. There are about four or five of them in New York, in, in Montreal, in Milan, um, in Singapore. We don't even have one rooftop farm in, Austro in Australia anywhere. And the technology exists about converting buildings into growing food uh, right now. And I'd love to see councils and state governments open up uh, policies and, and development applications to allow people to convert these buildings into spaces, not only to uh, um, absorb stormwater, but to grow some of our own food. Um, the roof and the wayside, it's completely self-sustaining. We have our own rainwater tanks, our own solar panels. It's, the technology exists and it, and it can be done. My frustration coming from my, my um, background in journalism is that often the last people to get it are journalists. So it can be quite difficult because they're the, the gatekeepers. They're the ones that the information has to pass through before it gets to the rest of the community. And journalists and, and media is a very unsustainable business. We are suck up a lot of electricity, a lot of air conditioning. Studios are very expensive places to run. So often these people who work in these environments, as I did, um, I could go weeks without touching a blade of grass or hugging a tree or, or anything, or even cooking my own food. So the, the real challenge is I find within my own network of of friends in the media is how you engage them with the story of love. Because most of them think I've gone completely nuts. Uh, why would you uh, trade presenting a, a television show in the evening for growing vegetables. Um, the, to them, they can't see the logic in that. And I think that um, I work really hard at trying to get them to physically come to my house and, and see things growing on the balcony. I've had people who, when I show them the technology that exists can do this, and I say, pick that bean from the, the, tr the vine, and I've had friends, journalists, who are really senior journalists, presenting very, very important shows. Can I just pick it like that and just eat it? That you don't have to do anything to it. And I say, no, it's perfectly fine. In fact, it's probably fine than most of the conventional vegetables that you're eating from the supermarket. So I know a lot of my um, role as a communicator is to actually communicate my own network of understanding the value of these technologies, the changes that are happening at a grassroots level across communities. I mean, I learned so much from Indigenous communities about that understanding of even something like a tree, um, and I feel terrible it's taken me all these years to even get it. I was looking at a beautiful eucalypt across the road from where I live in Potts Point, and we were going through a terrible storm, and I was moving all my pots around on the balcony, and this tree was there on its own, waving a little bit in the storm. But I really looked at it and I thought, isn't it amazing? This tree stays in one position its entire life. It gets all the water it needs, all the food it needs. It fends off pests, it protects itself. And here I am as a human being running around madly, getting food here, getting water here. Um, how much can we really learn from a tree? I mean, how zen is the existence of a tree? And there we are thinking that we know more than plants and more than trees. And I think that 
as I slow my life down and look at nature differently and see all the lessons that Indigenous communities and plants and trees can teach me, I think that is part of the love journey that we all need to grow rather than thinking we're um, above nature. As David says, we're, we're very much part of it. Uh, so the, the, the challenge is getting enough people in the media to understand that. And of course, those trees come from thin air. Yeah, Robin, if, if I can just add to that, I agree with you. A tree, something we all take for granted, you know, it's something you climb on and if a branch is in the way, you hack it off without even thinking about it. And yet a tree is an absolute miracle when you think that they, when the seed lands, it's stuck. It can't move and say, this is crummy, crummy soil. I want to go somewhere. It's stuck. And the minute it sprouts, everything's trying to eat it. So how the heck do they not only survive that sensitive area, but build themselves to last for hundreds of years out of carbon dioxide, water, and sunlight? That's all they do. And they, you know, these in incredible, I wrote a whole book called Tree, and it was all about what a miracle a tree is. Amelia. On technology and trees, I mean, um, I think looking at the metaphor of a tree um, often helps me think about um, the world and the kind of issues that are going on around the fact that, you know, a tree is influenced by every single aspect of the environment around it. But also when it comes to climate change and looking at the causes of it and the impacts of it and, you know, the people that face those impacts and all of the interconnectedness of that, um, we need to be addressing the, the root causes of these issues and, and not just kind of getting distracted looking at the branches and, um, you know, kind of being like, oh, this cup is sustainable or this and that. Like, it's all part of it, but obviously, you know, the climate change, as I mentioned before, highlights the inequity in the world and the way that we um, value money more than we do people, the way that we value different people more than others, all of that is very interconnected. Um, I think in terms of the, the technology and what we need to be looking at um, around, you know, at, uh, building solutions to these issues is not, I think, a few things. One is looking at how we can be transforming our cities and urban places. It's a huge part of it. But then also looking to regional towns and remote communities and those that are facing the brunt of the impacts. Um, and as long as we're doing it in a way that um, is particularly for Indigenous people, is on our terms because we can't afford to go about um, addressing this issue business as usual where, you know, a big corporation will come in and will um, we'll build a solar farm that is against the will of the, the people whose country it on, who fail to get, um, you know, the economical benefits from it, the jobs, all of that. And we need to be looking at the fact that ultimately it comes down to, you know, people and their homes and we need power. We need to be looking at um, how us as communities can benefit from this and how us as communities can play a role in determining what it looks like. Um, and how we can ensure that we are the ones that benefit from it. We are the ones that have our lights switched, up, switched on. Um, you know, we're not having to worry about, um, you know, dirty diesel generators not um, being available. We need to be um, looking at the different alternative economies out there that are available. You know, Australia is one of the sunniest and windiest countries in the world and we have the technology. We can look overseas. The energy revolution has already started. Um, but we're lacking in the political will and um, I think we know that we can't rely on political um, uh, um, promises or promises from those big decision makers. We need to get out there and kind of do it ourselves and lead it as a community. Isn't it the case that um, the new technologies will give you more independence? 
you can actually take over and control them yourselves and be independent of all those turbines and such like and the rather large corporations. Yeah, I mean, definitely. Like, um, as I mentioned before, I, was, I met with Crystal Lehman from Canada and we were talking about different communities that have un already undergone transitions from a reliance on the oil industry and fossil fuel projects and actually, um, you know, stood up and said, you know, our community needs to be powered, but we don't want to power it by this dirty industry and we don't want it to destroy our country. And, um, and, and how can we actually do that? And so they've built, you know, small-scale solar um, to actually power the community the um, benefit, the economical benefits of it go to power the, um, to fund the hospital and it's next to the school. There's a part of the curriculum at the school to teach the students about, uh, you know, why we're using solar panels and where the energy is coming from and how that's um, connected to, you know, the issue of climate change and the river down the road and all of the... All yeah, of we the need clear examples. We need to see what is possible, like your balcony is possible. There it is. And Josh Byrne, the gardener who's on... ABC television doing gardening shows, he's got Josh Byrne's house in Perth where they experiment constantly with new ways of doing things and there it is, you can go and have a look and join in some of the ideas. Can I, can I just um, add, one of the things that really frustrates me, uh, we've got a case at the moment happening in Sydney and, and, and I'm sure there are similar examples around the country where the state government wants to put in light rail, which again is you know good clean technology, improved public transport, generally what we'd be supportive of. But in the process to lay a light rail um, railway through a suburb is um, destroying about 20 hundred-year-old fig trees in the process. And there's lots of um, protests going on, but uh, unfortunately I think a lot of those trees will be destroyed. Um, and so on one hand, the government says it's doing something positive, but then destroying all the benefits of those hundred-year-old trees and, and the oxygen that they pump into the ground and carbon sink, it's, it just honestly just shocks me sometimes that you can come up with a policy that can do both things. And I was saying at a rally recently that if you told people that trees gave you free Wi-Fi, not one of those trees would be touched and everyone would be going, yeah, let's keep the trees, free Wi-Fi. But if you tell them it gives you free oxygen, no one gets excited about it. Um, and I think that that is that mindset that we need to change, you know, that the value of trees, um, we, we just don't think about it. Think about how much oxygen you've breathed in today and that's come from these trees and shade as well even greg hunt the minister of the environment is thinking of funding the planting of trees for shade in cities now we'll have some questions i i just wanted to ask about the right to a healthy environment is there a movement in australia and which of our politicians are interested in progressing that i just think that would be a brilliant thing for everybody to get behind and that makes fundamental policy change, which moves into what everybody else was talking about. Does anyone here know, does anyone here know how you get a constitutional amendment in, in your, uh, your system? You write it down and you wait 200 years. <laughs> <laughs> it's difficult. Yeah, I mean, I think it also needs to, um, you know, not only it's, is it a right to a healthy environment, but also, you know, we can look at the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and we need to apply all of those to any, any new policies that we come up with as well. Yes. Which, like, ultimately, it, it, it's, it's addressing the same thing because, you know, uh, that it's a part of our culture. It's a cultural responsibility to look after our country and each other um, and, 
you would hope that um, the same, you know, we'd apply the same things to any sort of constitution that was about addressing a healthy environment for everyone, because a healthy environment for us means a healthy environment for you. You know, two thirds of our referenda never get anywhere, which is rather sad. Yes, please, Abby. I would wonder if, in fact, love and care is all there is to do with it. In our increasingly urbanised and technologised and in a world with such a large urban population now, I would suggest that perhaps our knowledge and understanding of how natural systems work is part of our disconnection crisis with the natural world and that our lack of knowledge and understanding is a large part of our problem. Love and care is incredibly important, but knowledge and understanding equally so. Thank you. Yes. What about love for each other? There's a very famous psychologist, Barbara Fredrickson, in the, in the US, who talks about the idea that whenever we're in social company, the person that we love is the one who's in front of us at any moment in time. Jimmy Carter made much the same point. He said, there are two elements of love in my life. One is my God, and the other is the person who's in front of me at this moment. I wonder what the panel thinks of that idea. I, I think absolutely, I agree with you. It's, it's very much um, in the end about people. And what I love seeing with the gardens that I'm involved with is the wonderful community that grows around the garden. It ends up not really only being about the food that they're growing, but it's about those wonderful connections they develop with each other, the understanding, the sharing of food, the sharing of meals, the sharing of experiences. And that's what I think um, is really important to have more gardens in the city because people are so isolated from each other. We're lonely. We, we miss human contact. And just from growing some food in my apartment block, I've made friends with people I've seen in the lift for years that I've never even known their name that we now share and grow together and leave our excess produce um, at the front desk and the concierge for other people in the building to use. And I think that um, there are lots of ways to grow that connection, but yeah, sharing nature and that experience, doing something, growing something together is um, a good way to build those love bonds between each other, particularly in cities. Yes, if I can say something about what uh, we actually broadcast on Catalyst on Tuesday, I don't know whether you saw it, um, about music and the brain. Some people did. And the evidence is that 500,000 500, years ago, that's even before modern humans came, music was there and dancing was there and kept these larger groups together so that there was a bond between us. And then language came after that. And so communities are held together by these cultural elements, all of which Wom Adelaide represents to a T, both the music and the talk. I, uh, you know, I've been an atheist all my life, but Pope Francis, I will kiss his hands, his feet, or any part of his body he wants me to kiss. <laughs> Laudato, Laudato Si, his encyclical, is a magnificent document, and I, I regret that we didn't write it first. But what he has done is taken issues of social justice, hunger and poverty, the environment, and he's never split them into silos. They're all together. And his emphasis 
uh, or his statement is that we've spent a lot of time tr trying to work on our relationship with each other and with God, but we have spent no time on our relationship with creation. And I think Laudato Si is a magnificent document that allows us to, uh, to get at that. I mean, I agree, yeah. It comes down to, you know, seeing this, um, the crises that we face at the moment as not just, you know, environmental problems or this problem or that, but they're interconnected and they're about people um, and our people are connected to our planet. So, yeah. Next one. I don't know where the mic is, but please, Thank yes. You. Yeah, my question follows on from this. First of all, I think we're all aware that cultural change doesn't happen without great leaders, and so I'd like to really thank the great leaders we have here up on the stage. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I'd like to ask the question, how do we deal with cultural change, which is probably what, definitely what we're talking about, when we're confronted with um, you know, lots of money being spent on advertising, we're bombarded with it all the time, that we all feel that without all the things that advertising tell us we need, we're going to feel very insecure and frightened and Life, we're, life is, we're used to having all these things, you know. How do, how do we encourage people to see that life will be okay without all that or with a lot less than that? How do we do that in practical terms? I, I think part of it is, is that very famous saying, be the change you want to see. And uh, I know within my uh, broadcast and, and journalism circles, uh, it can be quite confronting for people to see some of the career and lifestyle choices I've made, but also quite confronting to see how much happier it's made me. Um, and I think that that's something that can be quite a difficult step for people to take because, you know, a lot of the things we do and why we do it and the hours we spend and the money we sink into it doesn't make us happy. And the structures, the advertising, the media is all there to try to help remind us why we do it. Oh, you want that big house, you, you want that, you need the latest this. Um, and I think that what's happened with me is reconnecting with nature has actually helped me simplify my life. And when I look at nature just taking what it needs for the, its own survival, it ne a plant never takes more than it needs. And as a gardener, you're always reminded of that. And you can replicate that in your, your own choices that you make. And I think that, you know, one of the things that can frustrate me about the way the media uh, frames these stories is it compartmentalises things. So we're told about the drought in this country, the ethnic cleansing um, in another part of the country um, and a, a, you know, horrific um, heat wave. And it's all in compartments, but really the media rarely tells you the big story, that they're all connected because they're, they're all parts of what climate change is doing. So even what's happening in Syria at the moment, a lot of that crop failure in the country areas of Syria, forcing people into cities and then exposing them to you know, the terribleness of ISIS, is because climate change has affected crops and there's been severe droughts and crop failure. But that message never comes through in the story. We just get maybe the refugee end of it or the you know, beheading video. And I think that um, one of the things I'd like to encourage my um, colleagues in the media is to try to look at that big story and everything does come back 
in a lot of ways to food and water and climate change. And a lot of those are the drivers that aren't getting into these stories. When you tell them that, do they nod wisely and accept what you say? Well, I think, you know, as you know, there's been huge changes in the, in the way um, media does what it does. We've lost a lot of great journalists out of the industry. The, the, the social media cycle has made things quicker and faster, more superficial, uh, less informed. And it's unfortunately at a time when we're needing more in-depth coverage, more detailed analysis, more questioning, more thinking. And most of our social media outlets and, and media outlets are not providing the platforms for that sort of information. So it is quite difficult that at a time when we need detail, we're actually getting superficiality. Mm. So it's, it's, in, it's really important also as consumers that you support the good product, the good programs, the good outlets, the good news services, um, and don't fall into that trap of, um, you know, small, um, uh, easily distracted, uh, you know, entertainment, celebrity news, gossip, all, all of that sort of stuff, because we need to be talking about this all the time. It needs to be in all our media all the time for us to even start addressing how as a community, as, as, a, as a nation, we can start addressing these problems. Well, that's, a, that's a big ask you're, you're, <laughs> you're saying here because, you know, uh, The Nature of Things is a television program that began in 1960. It was a half hour program. I joined when we made it a, an hour show in uh, 1979. And, uh, the nature of things existed when the first international conference on the environment took place in Stockholm, okay? 72. 72. So in 92, we were going to do one on Rio. I said, I better go back and look at what they did. And uh, so it was a half-hour program. There was a, a three-minute interview with, uh, with uh, Lady, whatever, Ward, Ward Jackson. There was a, a four-minute interview with Paul Ehrlich. And I was astounded because we run a, an hour show. We would never run an interview longer than 40 seconds. And when I watched it, I myself was going, oh my god, this is boring. So our whole, everything is sped up. And I, I absolutely agree. The superficiality of everything is it because we're demanding constant titillation. The last, our, our audience has dropped steadily as our number of channels has increased in Canada. So anywhere in Canada, when I started, there were like two channels. So everybody watched the nature of things, they loved the show. Now we've got in any big city, you've got 60 to 100 channels to choose from. So what happens when someone sitting on a couch is clicking down through the channels, when they click on the nature of things, you've got to reach out through the thing and grab them by the throat, don't touch that dial, you stay there. Well, how do you do that? You're shorter, you're sexier, you're more violent, you shout louder. We're all caught up in it. The last mega, mega audience we got was when we did a show, I suggested we'd get a good audience, called Fallacies, spelled P-H-A-L-L. <laughs> and the question was, does size matter? It turns out it does. And, uh, and uh, we're all caught up in that same game. So that's you know, what love has to do with it. Yeah. So that's, it's no, that's lust. That's not love. That's a, a different thing. But you know, th this, is, this is a problem we face that today anyone with a cell phone has access to almost unlimited amounts mm. of information. So if you want to think that climate change is baloney, guess what? You can go there, you can find dozens of websites that say, Climate science is junk, climate uh, change is junk science. Yeah. 
And if you want to believe God, our UFOs came to Earth and, and extraterrestrials raped women and had babies, guess what? There's a, there's a website. <laughs> I know. You want to believe God made the Earth in six days? There's dozens of websites. And the problem now is people just troll through the Internet till they find something that confirms what they already believe. Yeah. So there are these real challenges we face. The information, we want it faster, quicker, more sensational, but at the same time, we don't want anything that is gonna change our mindset. And the woman that raised the question about advertising, you're absolutely right. Billions of dollars are spent every year to convince you that Coke is a real thing or whatever it is. They're trying to brainwash us with their propaganda and it works. So mm. these are all challenges. You know, it's just not enough to say, well, you know, we've got to talk and be more insightful. We've, we've got a system now that really is working against us. Yeah, I must say that um, when people, my colleagues, find out that I have no cell phone, I have no car, I have no camera, I haven't bought clothes for 15 years, they don't really think I've got a phallus. <laughs> or that I'm a real man. Two, got two more questions. Yes, please. Uh, yeah, good afternoon. Um, I'm an Alamanikana woman, and I'm also with an APY woman. And we'd like to just say that we're here with Conservation SA, and we're currently running a campaign here. Um, Jay Weatherall from the South Australian Government um, want to allow nuclear waste dumping in our, on our lands. Yeah, exactly. Um, we just want to say that we've never ceded our sovereignty and we'd like to know why is it so hard for everybody to listen to our voices wherever we are on country. We had a 105-year-old elder that died on um, Yinjibadi country and he uh, was fighting Twiggy Forest, the mining company, and he said to them, why don't you have ears? You are not listening. We need the support of the non-Indigenous people of this country. We are the caretakers of this land. We have been for 60,000 years. And my question is, where is the love for Aboriginal Australia? Nobody is listening to us. We are fighting battles constantly on all fronts. I don't think that one... I mean, I, I can talk to that, but I think the question's also at our non-Indigenous people on this panel about how you're going to support us? Well, I mean, I'm not an Australian. I mean, that's up to Australians. It seems to me you've got a hell of a lot of people right here today, and my bet is that they're all supporting what you're, you're saying. The change is happening. In Canada, in Canada, 20 years ago, if I was doing a show on alcoholism, I wouldn't hesitate to have put a, sh a shot of a native person on Skid Row drunk. Today, that would never even be thought of as something. The change in attitude towards the indigenous people has been truly dramatic. And the every important environmental issue that's uh, on the agenda right now in Canada is being driven by First Nations with non-First Nations people there to support them. So uh, huge changes have happened in our country. The, everyone here does have a responsibility to, you know, look in your own backyards because, you know, if something's not just in your backyard and it's in someone else's, that doesn't mean that you don't have a, a reason to fight for it. And so um, our... Um, there's a stall over near Gate B 
um, where you can sign the petition to say no to and standing with the local people here to say no to this nuclear waste dump. Um, there's a lot of different platforms out there. Um, and if you do want to support the work that I do with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, young people across the country, you can go to seedmob.org.au. But also look in your own backyards because, you know, we don't, we're, we're just small and we're not doing that much in South Australia at the moment. And I want you to support these guys here. So I really want to make sure that Aboriginal people are listened to and that we actually respond to that as well. Indra, do you know how to stop people cutting trees down? In the, in the city, that is. Uh, I mean, it is, it is difficult, obviously, because councils are becoming so risk-averse and there's, you know, a greater number of people um, threatening to sue or fears of being sued. And uh, so, you know, a lot of things like um, playgrounds are becoming... losing all their... their their natural ways to teach children about how to play and the risks involved, um, and that's how they learn, and they're just becoming these um, cotton-wooled areas. And I think that, yes, we, we have swung too far uh, the other way, and trees obviously um, provide much more benefit to our communities than, than risks. And I think it's about just being a little bit reasonable about some of these issues and, and uh, not being as hysterical. Um, there are ways that obviously uh, we, we can allow our children to safely play, um, um, you know, where, where there are trees and, and tree roots. I think that um, it does require the community, though, to really be engaged. And as Amelia said, um, all these issues affect the wider community. It's not just what happens in an isolated town or city or streets. You know, so many of these issues um, uh, have... Um, effects on, a, on a, a state and national basis and that we need to all come together and rather being polarised in little separate groups with our separate interests um, and being used politically um, because we're in a safe seat or not in a safe seat, um, it, it does require all of us to come together as a, as a nation um, and, you know, stand up for the things that we absolutely believe in. And I think that we've allowed ourselves to retreat into our technology and our big televisions and our spa rooms and our big houses and really forget about the natural world out there and how it really is impacting communities. So it is, the, you know, that's why Worm Adelaide for me is so powerful. It's a time where we, we genuinely can come together as communities and, um, you know, share the best and, and share those ideas. So. Um, you know, let's start doing that more. Let's start doing it, yes. We've run out of time. Three of us are going to go over there to sign books. It is over there, isn't it? Yes. And Amelia will come with us, won't you? Sure. Amelia Telford, David Suzuki, Indra Naidu, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>